number uh, two. That's what chapter we're in right now as we continue through Lamentations. You know, the last couple of weeks have been a couple of weeks of uh, celebrating. Uh, we we uh, celebrated uh, volunteers of our church on Wednesday night. Then we had an ordination a couple of weeks ago for Jens, and then um, a get together for lunch on a Saturday, and with Chris and Diana, um, the wedding was last Saturday, so good to see them here tonight. Sunday, we had family Sunday, and then another meal, and then Tuesday, we had a meal, and then I had leftovers, and I had another meal, and just uh, continue, but tonight, you are at a funeral. Lamentations is the funeral uh, of a city, and uh, chapter number two is very much at the heartbreak part um, of this funeral, this, tear, this tear-stained portrait um, of once-proud Jerusalem is now in rubble. And so Jeremiah, a five-poem dirge, where he speaks about the death that has happened in Jerusalem, lies barren. And because I do not get to choose, um, I guess I choose what book we're in, right? But I don't get to choose the order of the chapters, I don't get to choose the themes, which means I don't get to choose the emotions of the night. And so this is not a lighthearted chapter. Uh, this is one that speaks about sin and the consequences of it, the fact that God brings uh, judgment um, upon sin, and we're going um, to see that as we look at it. Reminds you, as in the first chapter, having 22 verses, so does the second one. Um, as an acrostic, the Hebrew alphabet, just from A to Z, uh, looking at the consequences of, of sin here and then crying out, We'll eventually get the 323, uh, which will be a different emotion, and it will be Jeremiah crying out there and saying, great is thy faithfulness. Uh, but right now, we're dealing with the tragedy and the, um, in all of this. And uh, God's been faithful, and he never fails, but the people of the story here um, certainly have not been faithful to him. He was long-suffering to them, but they continued to sin. So if you haven't been to the limitations uh, service yet, I'll give you a quick summary and then I'll pray. So this is a Hebrew poem, the destruction of a temple, the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. falls at the hands of the Babylonian army. God, through his prophet Jeremiah, have warned the people of Judah that judgment was coming, but they failed to listen, and as a result, they faced the deserved judgment of God. Verse number four, I'll kind of give you a summary, and the he being God in this verse, he has bent his bow like an enemy, he stood with his right hand as an adversary, and he slew all that was pleasant in the eye of the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out all of his fury like fire. Um, the author of in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, several of us read the book together uh, last year. It describes a time in your life that seems like night. And even though, you know, at night, the planet um, Earth is still in orbit, and that eventually it will turn and that the Dawn will come, um, but in the moment, you don't feel like there's any kind of control or any kind of order. All you can do is feel uh, the darkness. We know the sun will rise, um, if not this side of eternity, it will on the other, but in the darkness, it feels like we're forsaken. And so what do you do when you feel like um, God is against you? That would be the question tonight. What do you do when you feel like God is against you? As they pray in Psalm 89, verse 46, How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? That's where the people are in this. How long, Lord, and will your wrath burn like fire? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help me, Lord, have clarity, to think clearly, 
And as I struggle, Lord, tonight, um, um, Lord, I just trust you. I trust that this is the passage that we should be at tonight. It is your word. It won't return void. And so, Father, help me communicate it with the proper uh, emotion, the proper uh, manner in which we ought to look at this chapter, trusting you. And, uh, Lord, no matter where a person is at tonight um, in their Christian walk, or, um, Lord, of their age, I pray that you'll help them, Lord, as it was sung already, Lord, to prepare um, you room. Lord, I pray that everyone at this moment, Lord, we would prepare room in our hearts to hear uh, from you, uh, that your word would communicate um, its desired intent. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, lamenting helps tune our heart. I've made mention of the last few services, but the song, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing, I think I keep saying, tune my heart to sing thy praise. I think the lyric is, tune thy heart to sing thy grace. Does anybody know in here what it is? I'll just make it up then, all right, since you don't know, don't, don't Google it. But either one of those, we're talking about the fact that of tuning um, our hearts uh, to see thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the face of God, he to save my soul from danger, interposed this precious uh, blood. And so that tuning um, of our heart and lamenting helps tune our heart. It helps us get to where we should be. A lament or a cry to God in prayer should be theologically rich in the things that we do. It ought to be because of what we really think about God, um, ourselves, and this world are going to be communicated. I like... um, uh, weddings better than funerals, right? There's no surprise to that, uh, that I'd rather go and eat cake than to, to mourn with people. Uh, but I would rather, and I think we'd all agree in here, I'd rather go to the funeral of a believer than the wedding of unbelieving people, right? Prefer, let's go to a wedding like we did of, of believing people. Uh, but, that, but there's something about, and I've seen this many times before, when you open up the door to the funeral home or the church, and it's been a, a saint, um, an older saint that passed away that had a clear testimony that you just experienced something in the room. You're like, you, you, could, you could tell me, I could drive by a funeral home, not knowing who's there, walk up to the door, open up the door, and before I even enter in, I think I could tell you um, if we're going to the funeral of a Christian family or not. Anybody follow uh, what I'm saying here? There's just a, a different under, understanding of it. Um, and so here, lamenting, Um, It it reminds us that there's a bigger song at play here, a bigger symphony at play, and we tune our hearts to make the music in alignment with God. It gives us, the prayers in the psalm gives us like lyrics to sing, we're invited in to the song that God is singing, connects our small story to God's bigger story, our heart, our confusion, and our struggle. And as we reflect and we think about it, God is tuning our hearts, Um, He's warning us, And in other words, this lament, it reminds us that God is merciful and kind and gracious, but he is also wholly just and to be fearful. And so if we talk about tuning our hearts and we lament, and you're in this funeral, you're in this city that lays barren, part of your understanding needs to be that God is merciful, kind, and gracious. That's one aspect. But you also have to know that he is wholly just and to be feared. And without those two things in tension, there would be no real tuning of the heart. And so that's what we're going to see. And um, in this psalm that is so heavy that I'm about to get to and read, that the grace that we sing about, 
Amazing Grace, the many different songs we sing. It's only amazing because we know that judgment is real. God will bring restoration to his people, but this chapter is not about that. It's only about judgment. Chapter 2 sings a terrifying song about God's glory and judgment. And so many of you are like, I'm so glad that I came here tonight. This sounds so edifying. It sounds so encouraging. But I remind you, you find this in the same book that you find everything else, and it's a message from God. And so we divide chapter into three sections. The, the wrath in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see the wrath real clearly. Then we're going to see the sorrow of the people in verses 11 through 17. And then it ends with an appeal uh, and, a, and a, pr- a prayer. So here's the wrath. God God does not passively pursue holiness in the life of His people. We're going to see this. If you're underlining in your Bible, you should underline all the actions taken by God towards Israel. Look at all that He hath. When you see that, you're going to know that this is God doing something. And this is the part that we try to edit, the harsh realities of the wrath of God from the Bible. um, And if you were to do that, you would need to skip this book. You would need to skip that chapter. Kind of like uh, Noah's, uh, Noah's Ark, right? You ever seen that painted on the nursery? I forget who jokes about that, but it's like the picture of Noah's Ark is always so beautiful. You know, all the animals are on there. They're on a little boat, and they're there. A lot of times you have two male lions, which people just need to know better, right? And uh, that is how that works. And, uh, and so there's, you see this picture, and it's so cute, and we put it in our nurseries. But what if you're the fast forward a few hours? What if you're the fast forward a day? That is not a picture that makes it onto the walls of the nursery. But that is a story that is in the Bible. And that is a truth that kids have to learn, even from the youngest of ages, that the ark was amazing because there was a flood that was coming, that they're both true. The grace of God is only wonderful because we deserve the judgment of God. And so it seems to be without hope, and it's the darkest before the dawn, and that's what brings us to chapter number 2. And I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through uh, 10. And I want you to notice all the he haths um, in this portion. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remember not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire, which devoureth round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary, and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed the places of the assembly. The Lord has caused the solemn feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion and has despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The Lord has cast off his altar. He hath abhorred the sanctuary. He has given up the hand of the enemy, the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord, as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall 
of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princess are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their head in the ground. Chapter 2 starts off with the same question that verse 1 of chapter 1 does. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of anger? How? It's a cry of pain. It's a more intense cry than even chapter number 1. And I hope you took note of a few things that kind of gives a framework here. You see that the Lord is angry. And that's not a comfortable thought or image, but it's real. The God of the universe can be justifiably and righteously angry, even though the people of God are precious to him. He speaks about him as the daughter of Zion, but he has set her under a cloud. And what kind of cloud is this? It is a cloud of judgment. The glory of the people of God has fallen. The blessings of God have been removed. The light of all nations have been um, extinguished. And the blessed people are now disciplined people. The blessed people are now disciplined people. The temple and the city seem to have been forgotten by God, uh, which it speaks about in Ezekiel, how the glory of God had left the temple and the beauty of God's presence was gone. And people, the enemies, is mock, are mocking at them. A place that was once so beautiful, a place that would have been a tourist destination, a place that would have been something worth seeing, is something now that is completely destroyed and ruined. And not only did it happen, but it came from God's hand. And there is no way to work around chapter number 2 and to remove God from that equation over and over again. It's as if he was an enemy holding back a bow and arrow, as if he was an adversary to them. And we'd all answer and say, is God not slow the anger? And the answer, he is. And if you've been following here, he was very slow the anger. He was merciful and gracious, and he is plenteous in his mercy. But they have been warned, and then now judgment has come, and the Lord has swallowed them up. He has thrown them down. He has brought them down to the ground. He has polluted the kingdom. He has cut off his fierce, um, cut him in fierce anger with the horn of Israel. He has not. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And so we see the extent of the destruction. It's really bad. And Jeremiah clearly wants to know that God is the one who is behind this, behind the Babylonian army and the judgment of Judah is a holy God. You know, I think it, sometimes I use this program called Grammarly that tries to help, and the things that I write would be far worse. I didn't even have that, right? And you're like, you use something? Oh, yeah, I do, all right? And sometimes it says, I don't even know what you're trying to say, and, all right? Uh, but in one of the things it says in Grammarly is it talks about a passive voice. Kids use it all the time. You walk into a room. What happened? Well, you see the table table and the air mattress got together and it broke, all right? Uh, that's what happened this weekend at um, my in-law's house, all right? They busted an air mattress. But in the storytelling by Carson, yeah, you're on the front row, all right? The storytelling by Carson, it happened, but there was no human element involved in it, all right? He was an innocent bystander, and two inanimate objects came together, and something happened. And so when kids are speaking, uh, when they're 
when they should say, hey, that's on me, that's my fault, I did that. And when they don't, that's called passive voice, all right? That's what I learned. And so that they speak in passive voice. Here, it's very clear, you need to know, these things did not just happen as the built-in consequence of sin. These things happen from the hand of God, that God deals with sin on every level, that God deals with sin on every uh, level. Verse 6 and 7, he destroyed their places of worship. And that just seems unbelievable because he seemed to be so invested in that. These things are being built, and now they're going to be destroyed. He took away in verse number 8 their bars, and that's not a a liquor store, right? It's their protection. It's their gates. He had removed that from them. And in verses 9 and 10, it's even speaking about their culture, just taking everything apart about the city piece by piece. God leveled their temples. He scatters the people. He ruined his own city. And why? Because as important as Israel is to God, there is something that is more important, and it's God's own righteousness. Which I remind you, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were not too big to fail. You can never be so important to the cause of Christ. You cannot be so important that you just can live life however you want and not deal with the consequences of sin. And this is what we have seen. I've seen it before um, in my own life. And childhood, somebody living in sin, but it just being ignored because dealing with it would just be too inconvenient for everybody, and they just allowed it to continue. And in this case, that's not what God does. God says, you are important to me. I refer to you as the daughters of Zion, but my righteousness matters, and they were not too big to fail. So questions we must ask ourselves here is, how big is God's holiness and righteousness to you? Do you take sin seriously? Have you first of all trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And um, is your heart tuned for God's glory? Do you have a holy reverence for um, God? Do you have a holy reverence and fear of sin in your life? And do we teach it? I asked the high schoolers today, I think the word stoic. You ever know anybody just like, they think that being very serious means being very religious, right? That there's something wrong about smiling. There's something wrong about ever enjoying stuff. Like the more serious I am, the more pious uh, that um, I am. And that happens on occasion. But there's also a ditch on the other side, right? Where everything's just lighthearted. That God just doesn't seem to care. It's the kind of the phrase of the day. I don't think that God really cares about and whatever you want, right? And if you listen to some people, God doesn't really seem to care about anything. But here in this story, we're reminded God does care about things. He does care about the righteousness. He does care about sin. And so here we have a transition from this section to the next. And now we turn to the response of the people. All the actions of God in those first nine verses. And then in verse number 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground. The older people there, the leadership there sit and they keep silence, and they have cast up dust upon their heads, and they have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Those that you would consider the older and more mature, they're sitting there putting dust on the ground, and those that ought to be in the, in the prime of their life, happy and celebrating, they are also people that are hanging their head. It's just completely everybody as a place of mourning which brings us to the section on sorrow. You know, few things are more moving than the suffering of children in the midst of tragedy. 
My dad, I wouldn't say, was a very uh, generous person, uh, but there wasn't hardly any time we saw a commercial about Ethiopia um, on television. And when I was a kid, I remember them being very popular, right? You'd see a picture of kids, and they would play music, and then you would call in, and he would always say he would adopt one or whatever it took. You know, they didn't really adopt one, but he would pay monthly for it, and we would, we would receive a profile about it. Because there's just something about the suffering of children in the midst of tragedy that is very uh, moving. And the judgment of Jerusalem is something that um, isn't to be studied. It's something to be mourned. The difference between the monument, a, a museum in D.C., the Bible Museum or some other one, and the Holocaust Museum you go into the Holocaust Museum, not to just study, but to mourn something. It contains information, but it's history. But they were not built for the same reasons. In Lamentations, we don't just study it historically, the destruction of a city, uh, but we mourn with these people. Verse number 11, Mine eyes do fail with tears. Jeremiah is saying, I've just ran out of te- tears. My bowels are troubled, my liver is poured upon the earth, for the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, Where is corn and wine? When they swooned as they wounded the wounded in the streets of the city, when their souls were poured out into their mother's bosom. What things shall I take to witness for thee? What things shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee, that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea, who can kill thee? The prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity. But I have seen thee false burdens and causes of banishment, and that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and they wag their head at the daughters of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty? the joy of the whole earth. That's what God had for them. That's what he had created for them. That's what obedience allowed them to rejoice in. That's where they once were, but now that's been completely removed from them. All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and they gnash the teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we've looked for. We have found, we have seen it. They're rejoicing. They knew this day would come. Verse 17, the Lord had done that which he has devised. He has fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and he has not pitied. He has caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He has set up the horn of thine adversaries. God had used the victorious enemy to be the instrument of judgment. And now the enemies are laughing at the promises of God and the destruction of Jerusalem. They they proudly act as if they were the ones who brought the people down. That we said in verse number 16, they opened their mouth against them. They gnashed their teeth and they said, this is the day that we have been looking for. They continued, verse number 14, they had prophets that were teaching them empty, vain, and foolish things. One of the consequences on a nation is the false teaching that was there. And then what we see through the hands of men as we looked at today, that God was using the, the enemy here to bring sanctification in the lives of his people here. By the wicked hands that would crucify Jesus, by the same wicked hands of the Babylonian people, the children of Israel have been placed in. They must lead, this leads to crying. 
transition to verse number 18. So the sorrow that they have is going to lead to them crying um, out. Their heart cried unto the Lord, verse 18, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Their heart cried unto the Lord. And this is where they give an appeal. In their sinfulness, they have ignored God, and now he has their attention. And this is going to lead um, to their prayer. 18 and 19. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let the apple of thine eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger on the top of every street. We consider whom we are because, because of the covenant. That's what, he, they're, that's what they're appealing to God. Verse number 20, it says, Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. That's what they're crying to the Lord. They're saying, God, we were, we're your children. We are the daughter of Zion. Consider this. And in two statements of just horrible judgment, should we have to eat our own children? And should the prophets be slain in their sanctuary? Is there no limits to the, the consequences and the judgment that we are dealing with? Very similar in Habakkuk 3.2, we're told that they pray unto the Lord and they say, In wrath, remember mercy. That's what they're praying here. They're saying, God, would you remember mercy? They're experiencing, they're witnessing, and they're remembering God's judgment. And it's meant to turn their hearts back to God. And so this ought to bring you to a point, if you're listening to it uh, now, or if you ever listen to it um, in the future of this message, this chapter, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it may be the message that awakens you to the seriousness of sin. You should never say, well, I don't think God really cares about my rebellion, or I don't really think God would care about my sin. Chapter number two of Lamentations tells us God most certainly cares and that he most, most certainly there is a consequence for the sin. And so let's look at a New Testament understanding here of what's being taught, what is always true about God. What's true in the Old Testament of God is true in the New Testament of God, and is still true today, is that sin has to be dealt with completely. Isaiah 61 verse 8 says, For the Lord loved judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offerings, and I will direct thy work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. Sin must be dealt with completely. We see in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life through Jesus Christ um, our Lord. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is always going to be dealt with. But Lamentations 2 is not the place where the seriousness of sin is seen on the greatest display. I think every one of us know where that's at. It's on the cross. Galatians 2.20, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We can see what would the penalty look like in, in the form of a city in Lamentations chapter number 2. What does your sin, what does it look like if you are not receiving mercy from him, if you were to receive full judgment for them, you would be cursed as well. And that's what Jesus Christ received um, in our place. So we see about God here in Lamentations chapter number 2. 
that sin is serious and that sin is going to be dealt with and sin will be dealt with completely. But we also see that we can be removed from the place of condemnation. Every one of us deserves what we've read about in Lamentations 2. We deserve judgment on every level of our lives and in every area of our lives, in the sanctuary, in our homes, in every area of our lives, none of us deserve any escape. John 3.18 tells us, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth um, in the name of the only begotten Son. He that believeth is not condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Every person in this world awaits a fate that is far worse than limitations, chapter number 2. They deserve the judgment, and unless they are found in Christ, then they will receive that. But Jesus Christ received it in our place. And as believers, you may know right now of times or now that you're under the disciplined hand of the Lord. God disciplines those that he loves, the daughter of Zion. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. You see, all suffering is connected to sin, but not all sin is connected, but not all suffering is, but not all sin is, not all suffering is connected to the sin of the sufferer. Let me try that one more time. All suffering is connected to sin, but not all suffering is connected to the sin of the sufferer. There is people here in Lamentations chapter number 2 that are dealing with the consequences of a sinful nation. And they are alongside Jeremiah, and they are crying out. And they're crying out for their nation to turn and repent. And they're saying, this is not what we should be doing. This is against the God of heaven. But judgment is coming. And the same for us. As a nation and as a people, we cry out. And we would, we're dealing with the consequences of the sin of other people. But there are times in which we deal with the discipline from our own sin. And just like the children of Israel, where God was long patient, time and time again, there came a time where they had to pay for the consequence of their sin. And God is patient, and He's long-suffering, but He loves you too much to allow you to continue living generation after generation or year after year as the children of Israel with not awaking you to the seriousness of your sin, which is what He has done here in this story. And so this chapter invites us to wake up, to be sober-minded in our hearts, uh, for our hearts to be tuned again to God's glory and to be a warning towards us. Just like Hebrews 12.29 tells us, for our God is a consuming fire. And all the stories that we have in the Bible that are true about our God, we also must remember the limitations true, demonstrate something that we must love about Him, that He is holy and just, and that he will not allow sin to go unpunished. And so because of that, it ought to awaken us to have a right hatred toward the things of sin. In the life of a believer, we should not entertain it. We should turn from it because we know that it will have devastating consequences on us as not honoring the him. And in a person who's morally right, a person who is, um, has not been forgiven of their sins, We should read Lamentations chapter number 2 and just say, I can't even imagine, and then picture that same thing for all eternity, worse than a barren land, but a place of destruction for all eternity. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of Jeremiah as he is going through something, Lord, that I cannot 
wrap my head around, going through a time of discipline as a nation, that he, Lord, crying out to you. Father, it makes me mindful of the fact uh, that there is a coming judgment upon this world, not just upon this nation or upon a city, but the entire world that I live upon, Lord, that one day it will be uh, destroyed. And Lord, I pray that I would be faithful to the work, that the believers inside of this room would be faithful to the work. And as historically true as the book of Lamentations we know is, Lord, we know that there's coming a day where you too will judge. You have been long-suffering, and you have been patient towards our loved ones and our friends. But Lord, would you help us have a seriousness about sin? Would you help us give them warning um, about what is coming and point them to Jesus Christ, Lord? Would you help us, um, Lord, as we would leave here to have a seriousness about you, to not think, take the things of God and just a flippant manner, but to recognize that you're a God that is just and holy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.